I'm going to share with you my childhood, and I have a feeling that if you share the childhood with me, just, just nod back to me, and we will commiserate in the pain of our childhoods together. You see, when we were driving places when I was a kid, we would pass the golden arches that are known as McDonald's. Did not matter how many hours we had been in the car, when we passed McDonald's, I would always say, can we stop at McDonald's? And my parents would say, no, we brought along sandwiches for the trip. When we would pull into a gas station and I could see the big giant slushy machine inside and the glowingness would call to me and we'd been on the road for 15 hours because you know we were driving to Nova Scotia, I don't know, and I would say, can we go inside and get a slushy? No, we cannot. You've got hot orange juice that's been sitting in a thermos for hours back there with you. Drink that. And we would go anywhere and there would be anything. The sun would be flashing. Some of us would be dying and fainting in our hunger in the back seat. And we would plead, can we please stop there? And I remember one day my dad finally said, when you're in charge, you can stop wherever you want. But when you're in my car, we are going. My friend... We don't go anywhere without stopping at a gas station. We can't make it to Longview without stopping to get a slushy along the way, maybe a Twix or something like that. When my children, even in the littlest like voice, say, oh, there's an ice cream place, something in the back of my brain that has been so scarred turns all the way across four lanes of traffic in there to get ice cream. And it's this whole idea, when you are in charge, you can do it the way you want to do I took that to heart, and I was like, you better believe that I will do that. So when we talk about being in charge, and maybe the most modern way to connect that to the word Lord is simply that, in charge of. But that doesn't really grasp it. I'm just going to use it as an example. So I want you to think, whenever we, whenever we speak to, to children, especially like at Vacation Bible School, and we're doing this Bible verse, this Romans 10, 9. And we talk about them about Jesus as Lord and ask them, what does Lord mean? It's just, you know, kind of blank expression comes on. And someone will say king and some will say God, which are true. But I kind of start doing concentric circles out. And I go, so, so is Jesus in charge of this room? And they go, yeah. Well, is Jesus in charge of this church? And we start pulling it out a little bit more. And they go, yeah. Well, is Jesus in charge of this neighborhood? And then you start pulling it out farther and you just go, well, this state, this region, this country, this hemisphere, this planet. Then all of a sudden we're starting to get into closer to the neighborhood of where Jesus is. This this galaxy, this universe, this everything, these concentric circles still going out and out and out. There is no place where Jesus does not reign as in charge of all. So to say Jesus is Lord is an incredibly Christian thing to say, but it's also a not very well thought out thing. So usually we just kind of rip it off, Jesus is Lord, praise you Lord, thank you Lord, appreciate that Lord, dear Lord. And yet the, the, the wealth of depth of the statement of Jesus is Lord is something that when we get to this part of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. We've got to stop and take a little bit of time with the Lord part because it will shift how you see everything in the Bible if you and I are to get a true grasp on Lord. So the first thing, even before we even get to the text, is to jump into the craziness 
the craziness and radicalness of faith that is simply Paul saying Jesus is Lord. Now, if you were to turn over and just just by virtue of kind of by way of thinking, go to the beginning of Acts and the, or then go to Philippians chapter 3, you would see Paul talking about his Jewish pedigree. And, and to, I hope this, is, I hope this is, a, is just, I wrote this in my notes about Paul. I wrote Paul wasn't just a Jew, Paul was a super Jew. You know, it's kind of like a superman, he was a super Jew. And he even says this, he's like, I'm a super Jew. You know, if, he, if anyone was as Jewish as me, they couldn't even touch how Jewish I am. I was Jewish to this nth of the degree. And if you grew up as Jewish as Paul did, you would have had one simple statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And that would simply be the bar by which you would measure anything and anyone else by. Are you truly a follower? And then you would say, what is the saying? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you cannot miss that someone who has staked their life on that point up to this point all along, and everyone that he represents as someone who has come into contact with Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, now no longer says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, but simply says, Jesus is Lord. And that is an earth-shattering revelation. Sometimes we go, yeah, of course Jesus is Lord, but we don't grasp where that is coming from, the gravity of where that's coming from. So let's take just a little bit of time and jump into this text. <clears throat> Bob actually backed it up, so we're starting in verse 4. But verse 4 is going to give you a little bit of a kind of, it's more of a, it's a good bookend to start from before we get to 15. So in verse 4, Paul uses this term as that Christ is the end of the law, the termination of the law, the fulfillment of the law. Now I want to give you a, a little bit of an explanation of what that is. If we think about God's law, and we think about God's law, and go all the way back to the Pentateuch. Let's look at the Pentateuch. Let, let's look at what so many of those laws that we go, oh my gosh, I can't believe this, or they're not supposed to eat shellfish, and they can't eat this fabric, can't use this fabric woven in this other fabric, and you can't go to this place on this day, and get this, this place on that day, and oh, I just can't get it. And I want to stop right there just for a minute. Because God's laws in the Old Testament were designed to do three things. One, God's laws were designed to make sure that his people were separate from anyone else. They did not look like anyone else. They did not dress like anyone else. They did not talk like anyone else. They did not have the same customs as anyone else. They were separate. They would not only be something in their hearts, but something physically about the way they walked, talked, acted war that separated them for God. Because when you think about it, if God is going to choose a unique people for himself, ought he might to have unique things for them? So that was one thing. Then secondly, God's laws were there to have a sinful, unholy people be able to come and worship and have communion with a holy, unknowable, amazing, majestic, powerful, incredible God. So... You and I both know, you know, when, when, a, when a surgeon goes in to go spend time with a patient, he's washing it, he's washing parts that don't even have anywhere near going to get to touch that patient. And he's washing this and they're walking in like this and everything like that. Well, how much more so should we be holy and washed before we come in the presence of God? Not that we'll, not that we'll give him germs, but to just say he is so holy. So God's got things to set his people apart. God's got laws so that people can come and be be in his presence and thirdly God's got laws that separate his people from everyone else by the way that they treat one another and we will call those God's laws of morality but do you realize that Christ accomplishes all of those with his death and resurrection 
Christ is the one who makes us holy. Christ is not, it's not how we dress anymore or how we wash. It is Christ who sets us apart as belonging to God. And it's Christ and following him and his, and faith in what he has done that allows us to truly, for the first time, have right relationships with one another. So you see, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He takes one, two, and three and fulfills all those. He doesn't, none of them go away. He kind of checks them off. Yeah, belief and faith in me does that. Belief and faith in me does that. Belief and faith in me does that. And so when we get to verse 5, we get to verse 5 and we have this, what is it? Obeying obeying of the law is what makes you righteous. But you've got to realize that verse 5 is an exact echo of what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. And we know that the way that story went, that you can't, it cannot be by simply fulfilling the law because trying to fulfill the law just shows you that you are sinful. So verses 6 and 8 are a place that Paul is kind of asking you to enter into this dialogue that he's having with the law and with grace. And so part of it is he's asking you these questions. And so as he's asking these questions, he's answering them back to you in 6, 7, and 8. He's saying, listen, Christ has come from heaven incarnate, and he has lived here on earth. And he has already been raised up to newness of life. And it absolutely is with your heart and lips that the saving response to this message is spoken. All of those things have happened. He, is no, he has come. He's not in the grave. And it's so near you that you simply must, out of a belief in your heart, profess it with that belief that gives birth to live life-giving words. And so when we get to verse 10 then, again, verse 10 is a little bit of a mathematical equation because the verse 10 is a both and. And he's saying, now listen, it's both that if you believe, then you're going to confess. And if you believe and confess, then you are justified. And if you're justified, then you're saved. So to believe is to confess and to be justified by Christ is to be saved by Christ. So in verse 11, we get this incredible quote again. This incredible quote goes back to Isaiah 28 16 no one who hopes in the lord will be put to shame but you know what this is the second time actually that he's quoted this in two books the first time was in 933 and so if you can imagine him speaking to a group of jewish people or a group a group of jews who have grown up and said i don't know all my life i have trusted in hero israel the lord our god the lord is one all my life i've trusted in me perfectly trying to keep the law and that is what's going to make me right and he says again For now, quoting the third time, if you count the original quote, no one who has put their hope or trust in Christ has ever been put to shame. Come on. Verses 12 and 13 are then actually a contrast to verse 322 because in verse 322 we get that every single person has sinned and all of them have fallen short of the glory. But a contrast to that here in 10, 12, and 13, there's now... Not that there's no contrast in sin, but now there is no distinction. There's no distinction or special favor in salvation. All are the same. Salvation is available for the Greek, the Jew, whatever ethnicity, ethnicity, man, woman, whoever. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. And I told, I told Bob, I said, we even saw this work out in our own country. Think about the amazing thing that is this. We, hundreds of years ago, brought chattel slavery from Africa, human beings over, 
who then heard us talking about Jesus as Lord in our sinfulness or in those people's sinfulness, sinfulness as being slave owners. But the truth of the gospel, because it's so transcendent, worked their way into those lives because they grasped that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master, not some person. So there was this freedom that breaks out even within, even among those who are in captivity. And they go, I know who my Redeemer is. I know who the Lord is. It is not the situation that I'm in right now. There is neither Greek, slave, free, man, woman, barbarian, Scythian. And they grasp that. And even today in our country, the churches are vibrant as ever because it's not the truth that someone is Lord, but the freeing truth that Jesus is Lord. And finally, we get to verses 14 and 15. And I love that verse 14 and 15 simply just say, well, well, let's come together then here for a minute. Because if all this is true and Jesus is Lord, and it's not something we have to go up to heaven to get, go down to the depths of the earth, or somehow gather it in that it's here on our lips so close to our hearts, then there is an urgency then for us to go out and share it. And, and he quotes again from Isaiah 52, 7. And Isaiah 52, 7 is what Bob was talking about in the children's message. Isaiah 52, 7 actually is how beautiful are the feet of those who bring on the mountains, who bring the good news that our God reigns. And Paul turns that a little bit at the end. He says, how beautiful upon the feet of the mountains are those whose feet bring good news that Jesus is Lord. And so that Jesus is Lord is the most amazing news ever. So Bob's going to continue this and continue talking with you guys about Jesus as Lord. I was watching my clock thinking, Paul can't get through all this scripture in a few minutes. He did amazingly well to get through all that. Give Paul a big hand there. That was incredible to get to the heart of the text. I've been asking myself all week and asking Bible study groups, uh, what word would you substitute for Lord in our everyday language? Uh, Because Lord is not a word that is common to our culture and time. So, and, and if, if we do use it, it tends to be negative. We use it as a verb, like to lord it over someone or to be an overlord or whatever. There's nothing positive about that. So I've been asking for other words that were parallel, and groups would come up with things like um, boss or coach or teacher or pastor or spouse. I won't tell you which gender was using that one. Uh, president, military commander, police officer, mentor. And the problem is that all of those may have some parallels to the idea of Lord, but none of them really capture the 24-7 like he is Lord of everything everywhere. So I finally settled about midweek on the word sovereign, uh, because I think sovereign is largely an unspoiled word. And if you look it up in the dictionary, it actually means absolute uh, control, absolute authority and power. Now, it's often used in a, in a more limited context, and to say that Queen Elizabeth is the sovereign of England really still doesn't quite capture the idea of Jesus as Lord, but still it's a, it's a relatively unspoiled and absolute idea, and so it's the best I could come up with. I don't know if you can come up with a better one or not. But part of the reason that I think sovereign sort of rung a bell with me is because Linda and I have been sort of binge-watching the Masterpiece Theater series on Elizabeth and then Victoria, so, like, I've, I've been thinking about what it means, and I, I've, I've actually been, even though the parallel is not exact, I've been thinking about how there are parallels between the British sovereign and, and Jesus or God as Lord. Uh, let me give you just a few. One is allegiance. So, 
both politicians and citizens have to pledge their loyalty to the sovereign, right? It's not an option. Another is mystery, that we all sort of have this curiosity about what happens behind the scenes in the royal palace, and maybe less so as Americans than Brits do, but it's like, okay, but there is a lot of mystery about what happens in relationships that are invisible behind the scenes. That's why they make those masterpiece theater series, right? And then uh, restraint. So the sovereign does not uh, openly micromanage all details. I'm looking for my... Ah, I'm sorry, it's not for you, it's for me, but I was trying to make sure I had my eye on the time. Uh, so uh, restraint. The, the sovereign does not micromanage everything, right? Doesn't, doesn't appear to be. It's like they're, not, they're always not pulling strings. And then love. So Victoria, especially in the Masterpiece uh, Theater series, longs for her people to know that she loves them and wants love in return. So whatever else is going on here, it's really a relationship that she desires of love. So as we go through, and I, then I'm going to skip over my part of the um, exp- exposition of the scripture because that's what Pastor Paul did, but I was sort of testing that. What does that look like when you apply it to Jesus. And here's, here's the bottom line. When we call Jesus sovereign, we need to use sovereign with a capital S. He's not a sovereign. He is the sovereign. So what's the background of this, of, of Paul calling Jesus sovereign? Now, a lot of commentaries and even sermons, preachers, will talk about the parallel between Caesar as Lord, which was the sort of Pledge of Allegiance for the Roman Empire, and this is not Caesar is Lord, this is Jesus is Lord. Uh, great point, but I don't really think it's the point of this text. This text comes in the context of Paul talking to the Jewish people about the Jewish people, about their context. And so when you think about that, Paul's primary background for this word Lord is not what's happening in the Roman Empire. It's actually the 6,000 times the same Greek word kurios is used in the Old Testament for the name Yahweh. So when the Greek, uh, when the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek, every time the personal name for God appeared, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, Lord, all capital letters in your Bible, it's translated as kurios. Now that brings a whole new level of absolute sovereignty to this, because what Paul is saying is, when you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Yahweh. Think about that for a moment. When Genesis says that uh, Yahweh breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, that's Jesus. When Yahweh appears to Moses and says, I am that I am, that's Jesus appearing to him. When Yahweh, uh, let me flip a page in my notes here, when Yahweh um, says to Abraham, or says that Abraham believed God and he credited to him for righteousness. That's Yahweh that he's talking about. When Joshua says, as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh, that's Jesus. He's one with the Father. And you flip it over to the New Testament and sort of reverse it. When there's a baby in the womb of Mary, that Jesus is Yahweh. When he's laid into a manger, that Jesus is Yahweh. When he goes and interacts with the religious leaders in the temple, that Jesus is Yahweh. He is one with the Father. When he heals the sick, when he raises the dead, when he casts out demons, that's Yahweh at work. When Jesus agonizes in the garden and says, Father, 
take this cup away from me. That's God talking to God, Yahweh speaking to his father saying, please take this cup away from me. And when he suffers under Pontius Pilate, when he rises from the dead, when he ascends into heaven, Jesus is one with the father. And Paul says, you don't get him unless you confess Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is one with the Father. Which is why in terms of application, thinking about what this means to us, it really diminishes Jesus when we ask the question, have you made him Lord? Like right. It's like going to a British subject and say, have you made Elizabeth your queen? This has nothing to do with you. This is who he is. Right? But when I confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is one with the Father, that he is the sovereign over the universe, then it changes everything. Because then it matters to me what he wants for my life. But my confessing him as Lord does nothing to uh, increase his identity, and my denying him as Lord doesn't diminish who he is. He is who he is. He is the sovereign. He is Yahweh. But when we make this confession, we do indeed change everything about us, and it brings a deep sense of assurance. So Pastor Paul uncovered a story earlier this week that I thought was really a cool story, but at first I like didn't believe it, because I went and Googled it, and it was a bunch of preachers that tell this story. No offense to preachers, but I'm going like, okay, I need a little bit more, you know, historical background to know this is true. And so I went and looked it up, and sure enough, it comes from Queen Victoria's own diaries. So it's true. And then my, my deep respect for Pastor Paul, when, I said, uh, when he said to me, I think Thursday, he said, well, are you going to use this story at 8.30? I said, yeah, I think I will. He said, okay, then I won't use it. Like, his, it's his story. He found it, and he turned it over to me. All right, so here's the story, and this is why Queen Victoria, I think this whole idea sort of rang true with me in a very personal and real way. Queen Victoria attended a chapel service um, during her reign at St. Paul's Cathedral, and afterwards uh, she was intrigued by what the chaplain said, and she asked the chaplain, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? And the chaplain said, nah, I don't really think so. Like, uh, and this was reported widely in the media. There was a, an evangelist by the name of John Townsend who got wind of this in the media and wrote Queen Victoria a letter in which he said, to her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble servants. With trembling hands but heartfelt love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture, John 3.16 and Romans 10.9 and 10. So read this text that we read today. These passages prove that there is full assurance of salvation by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe and accept his finished work, I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. And he asked other people to pray as well, but he really didn't expect to get something back from the queen, right? So about two weeks later, he gets a handwritten note from Queen Victoria to John Townsend. Your letter of recent date I received and in reply would state that I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me, and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you, Victoria. 
It doesn't change Jesus when we confess him as Lord, but it changes everything for us. Let's pray together. And perhaps if this uh, all is sort of new to you, and we're going to be talking about different aspects of who Jesus is and what he did from now through Easter, but this confession, Jesus, the incomparable one, the only, the one and only Son of God, Jesus the Christ, he is Yahweh, he is the Lord, he's the creator, he's the, the sovereign over the universe. If you have not owned him as such and confessed him as such and embraced him because he's the one who died and then rose again, today would be a great moment just in the quietness of this hour to confess Jesus. You are Lord. Lord Jesus, there are in some of our minds, I'm sure, questions about, well, how exactly does that work among the Trinity? How can Jesus be Yahweh, and the Father is Yahweh, and the Spirit is Yahweh? And we simply bow before mystery, before the wonder of who you are, and we leave all of that, things that we can't fully understand or explain in your hands, but we thank you that you, our eternal God, came and indwelt our world, and we today afresh confess that Jesus is sovereign, the sovereign, over everything that is. And Father, may that change the choices that we make on this day and this week, that we might honor our sovereign with our lives. And when we come to moments that are so very um, overwhelmingly difficult for us, those things that we can't do anything about, And the surprises that come along as they came along for the McGraths and the Lales and others this past week, may we just rest not in our trust in you, but in who you are and in your care for us. You are Lord, you are sovereign, you're in charge, and we're yours. And we thank you for that assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.